If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode five of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. As always, if you are a new listener, thank you. Thank you very much for giving this show your time. Make sure that you are subscribed to the show. Also, make sure that you go back into the episode feed and listen to earlier episodes of the show. We've got a couple now. I'm particularly proud of the last episode that we did about the intersection of Star Wars and history, so do make sure to give those a lesson, listen when and if you have the time. So for today's episode, I thought I would do something to mark the coming of the second season of The Mandalorian, and so I thought I would talk today about one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars medium that is unfortunately now no longer canon. It is now in the Legends pile, and that is the 2002 video game Star Wars Bounty Hunter which tells the story of Jango Fett um, in the years between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. So what we're going to do is talk a little bit about, first off, about Jango's backstory, both what we know about it in canon and then a little bit more in Legends. And then we'll get into the game itself. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about kind of general gameplay, what it's like, and then dive into the story of Bounty Hunter and what it kind of tells us about Jango Fett, or at least what it did back when it was still canon, and talk about some of the kind of parallels between Bounty Hunter and The Mandalorian, because I think there are similar uh, story beats that both hit. I mean, I remember when I first started watching Mandalorian, one of my first reactions to the early episodes in season one was seeing some of those comparisons between the story of Din Djarin and the story of Jango Fett as it's told in the video game. So, Starting off with Django's backstory. So, Django's backstory in current canon, there is some material. I think there's a. I think there's some comic book material that gets into it. But at least compared to Legends, for example, we know much less about Django Fett's background. So, for example, in the Clone Wars, in the very first uh, Mandalore arc that we get, when Obi Wan goes to visit Satine, he has a meeting with Prime Minister Almec where he brings up. Uh, Jango Fett having recently fought him. And then Almec immediately reacts very negatively towards the mention of Jango Fett. In fact, he goes so far as to claim that Jango wasn't a Mandalorian, but was just, in fact, an imposter with somebody who was using Mandalore armor. So there is a little bit of ambiguity in current canon about Jango Fett's real lineage and whether or not he is, in fact, Mandalorian. By contrast, if we look at Legends, Jango Fett has a very fleshed out uh, backstory, and the Bounty Hunter video game is a big part of that. So what we learn in Legends is that Jango Fett was born on Concord Dawn. I think this is actually still true in current canon also, which is part of the Mandalore system. We see that in canon in Star Wars Rebels, that is the moon where um, the protectors led by Fen Rao are stationed. In Legends, uh, Jango Fett is adopted by the Mandalorians, and he is trained as a Mandalore warrior. Not dissimilar to what we know about Din Djarin also. He was also somebody who was 
taken into the Mandalorians and wasn't necessarily born one of them. Django is trained and mentored by a guy by the name of Jaster Mareel, who is the leader of the Mandalorian people in Legends. In Legends, uh, Django fought alongside Jaster Mareel and his second-in-command, a guy by the name of Montross. That's an important name to keep in mind and is a central figure in the Bounty Hunter video game. Against Death Watch. So, like, Django, Jaster Mareel, and Montross were what was known as the, kind of the true Mandalorians. And they were fighting against Death Watch. Again, not dissimilar to basically what current canon is with, you know, with Satine and Clone Wars fighting against Death Watch. So Jaster Mareel is killed by the Death Watch, and there is a kind of jockeying between Jango Fett and Montross, basically, for who is going to have power, basically who's going to lead the Mandalorians. And ultimately, out of that fight, uh, Jango comes out on top, and he becomes actually the new leader of the Mandalorians. So he actually rises to a really big, prominent position of power in the Legends story. And then after that, Montross basically goes into a kind of exile and he starts basically getting into bounty hunting, which is where we meet him in the Bounty Hunter video game. And then Django, as the new leader of the Mandalorians, as the successor to Jasta Mareel, helps bring about the defeat of Death Watch and he basically brings peace to Mandalore. However, after that, Legends tells us that Django, once there is no more fighting, he kind of feels a little bit like disillusioned or feeling as though he's lacking kind of purpose or unsure what to do. So ultimately, he ends up sort of abandoning his post as the leader of the Mandalorian people, and he goes into bounty hunting, which is where we find him in the video game. Now to transition over to talking about Star Wars Bounty Hunter. So some general comments about the gameplay. So the first thing I want to say about the game in general is that it has a really, really dope theme song. It's, it's really, really a favorite of mine. In fact, I'm going to drop in a little bit of sample here just so you can get a taste of what it's like. Aside from that, in terms of the music that shows up in, in Bounty Hunter, most of it is Attack of the Clones music, particularly the music from the Coruscant chase, when Obi-Wan and Anakin are chasing Zamwazel through Coruscant after she attempted to assassinate Padme. They really, really love to use that music in any kind of situation where there is kind of like fighting and combat going on, and it's like really, really intense, you start hearing that in the background. Sometimes you'll hear music from the Obi-Wan Django fight, although that is actually surprisingly sparingly used. You'd think it'd be more in there because it is directly associated with Django Fett, but actually no, it only crops in every now and then. You will also hear different points like um, music from the Phantom Menace, particularly the droid army theme that we hear during the invasion of Naboo. There's even a little bit of like a New Hope music and so on. So it kind of borrows here and there from different aspects of the Star Wars soundtrack, oh, but it is mostly focused in on Attack of the Clones. Django is voiced by Tamira Morrison. He came back for the video game to offer his voice, which is really, really cool. 
In terms of basic abilities that you have as Django Fett, as playing as a character, so you have, for example, hand-to-hand combat, which you can use, which you basically never use in the game unless you don't have access to your weapons, which is a few times, because it's really not that effective. You've got the blasters, you've got his twin blasters, you've got flamethrower, you have got a grappling hook, so basically like the the rope that he uses like when he ties up Obi-Wan and stuff, you have that. You have the Kamino Saber darts in a limited quantity, but you do have the ability to use those. You also have a like cutting tool to use for grates to getting through, because there's a couple points in different levels of the game where you actually either have to go through a vent or through a doorway and it's kind of grated shut, and so then you basically like stand next to it and you have to cut it open. And you also have a bounty scanner. So basically, in addition to completing the kind of objectives of each level of the game, you also have the option of pursuing bounties all throughout the game. And each level of the game, there's a certain number of people, whether it's like, I think it starts out like around five in a level, and then it will get up to like 10 or 15. And so you use this bounty scanner. So whenever you're in a room or a new space, and there's either, you know, people walking around, whether it's just like civilians in one setting, or maybe it's like some goons or whatever, you can scan the people and then it will tell you whether it's just an ordinary person or whether they have a bounty. And then it'll tell you, you know, how much are they worth dead or alive, how many credits or so on, whether they want, whether the bounty specifies dead or alive or either. And the other thing that the bounty scanner is really good for, apart from, you know, trying to pick it, pick these up, is it's also useful in the game for planning long range attacks, at least in my experience. So one of the things that you can do with it is it can tell you where certain people are situated. So if you enter like a space or like a new part of the game, you can basically do a scan and try to pick up, okay, like where is like a sniper or where the, where is their goon station or whatever and so on. And then you can basically kind of pre-plan an attack. So if you want to attack people at a distance, so you might be able to like scan someone who is, let's say, on top of a building far ahead. And then you could, let, let's say, like use a saber dart and like take them out or use your blasters and shoot them at a distance. So it can be useful for that as a part, in addition to its uh, its intended purpose. So in addition to that kind of basic arsenal of tools, there are also extra abilities that you acquire at different stations of the game or that you have in limited quantities here and there. So for example, the jetpack, um, you do not actually start out with a jetpack. I'll get into that when I talk about the game. You have got, when you have the rocket jetpack, you have the option of using rockets. You can also, at different points in the game, have the option of picking up bombs or grenades, rather, that you can throw. Sometimes you have the use of a sniper rifle. Um, That comes really in handy. And other times you also have the use of, like, a heavy cannon, basically, this one that you carry around, and that's kind of like a plasma cannon. And then, basically, as you're kind of going through the game, you have the option to pick up different things. So you have, like, health canisters that can either uh, replenish your health partially or completely. You can pick up, for example, magazines for your sniper rifle, bombs, rockets. And on the rare occasions, I personally, I've only encountered this twice that I can remember. You can also pick up brief invincibility. So you will see basically like the little like mythosaur symbol, the one that like Boba Fett has. And then if you pick that up, you get invincibility for, it's a really short time. I want to say maybe like 20 seconds, no more than like half a minute. So those are your basic kind of tools that you have in the game. And then, you know, as you're going through the game, you know, in addition to, you know, completing whatever specific mission you have, you also naturally have to face off against, 
your kind of galactic assortment of different goons. And these guys really kind of run the gamut in terms of species-wise. So, you know, you've got humans, for example. Although humans are actually kind of limited to certain levels, they're not, like, super, super prominent in terms of just, like, the garden variety bad guys you have to shoot. But then you've got, you know, in terms of aliens, you see Trandoshans. There are a lot of Trandoshans in this game. You've got some Grands. Those show up pretty frequently. Dugs are in a particular level. Um, you've got Rodians, you've got Weequays, you've got your Aqualishes. So a lot of the kind of standard folks that we see in other kind of Star Wars media who are just sort of like hired hands and so on show up in Bounty Hunter. Um, most of the time they are speaking in Hatties. So like as you're like as you're like fighting them or just like walking through an area, you will hear just kind of like random snippets of Hatties getting spoken every now and then. And of course, you don't really know what they're saying. But sometimes they do speak in English, particularly when you get like the human characters. And sometimes they can say like really, really funny things sometimes. So yeah, in terms of the basic structure of the game, um, the game is divided into six chapters and there are three missions in each chapter. And, you know, as I just mentioned, in addition to completing specific mission objectives, you also have the option of hunting down bounties in each mission. You know, for me at this point, I think I have gotten almost all of the bounties on almost all the levels. There's a couple where I still haven't like gotten the full sweep. Um, and largely those are because those are particularly difficult levels in order to track people down. And unfortunately, one of the caveats about the bounties is that the count essentially resets every single time you play the mission. So it's not like, let's say, let's say a mission has like 15 bounties and you collected seven. The next time you go back into the game, you have to recollect all those seven in addition to the ones that you didn't get. So that's what that's something that makes it very hard to like complete all of them, particularly for some of the harder tier levels. So yeah, that's some of just the basics of the game. So let's actually get into the game itself. So the game opens with an opening crawl that tells us that a cult called the Bandogora has been wreaking havoc throughout the galaxy in the wake of the events of the Phantom Menace and has been particularly attacking major industries in the galaxy. And they have crossed the radar of one Darth Sidious who views them as a threat to his own plans and he calls up his new apprentice to discuss the situation with the Bandogora. And that is basically where the game begins. So the opening scene takes place aboard Dooku's ship, his solar sailor, the one that we see at the end of Attack of the Clones. And Sidious appears as a hologram to Count Dooku. And in it, Sidious chastises Dooku for passing on an earlier opportunity to eliminate the leader of the Bandogora, so alluding to a prior connection between Dooku and the Bandogora that we will get fleshed out later on in the game. So Sidious kind of tasks Dooku with eliminating the threat of the Bandogora. In addition, Sidious mentions the need to find a host or a template for the clone army that he and Dooku are developing out on Kamino. And Dooku promises basically to kill two birds with one stone. So basically to find a simultaneous solution to the Bandogora and also to finding a template for the clone army. 
So from there, we go into chapter one. And chapter one takes place on Outland Station. It is basically this kind of floating space outpost, not unlike the one that we see in the Mandalorian episode, The Prisoner. And Outland Station is run by a Toydarian named Rosada, and for most of the game, she goes by Roz. And unlike Watto, who is blue, she is pink. We see Jango Fett, and we see him tracking down a bounty on a criminal by the name of Miko Ginty. And he is at Outline Station, and he is participating in Borek fighting. So Boreks in the game are these creatures that the best way I can describe them is they resemble large beetles. And so they're basically like duking it out in this arena. So similar to like galactic cockfighting or something. And Django is basically in the stands of this arena. He tries to capture Miko, but he gets knocked into the arena where the Borex are along with Miko himself. So they both kind of fall out of the stands into the arena. And when that happens... It's revealed that Miko has been using a remote control on his Borek. So he has basically been cheating in the game. He's been using this device in order to control the creature's actions. And then he kind of uh, runs away. He basically leaps out of the arena and takes off before Django can catch up to him. And another crucial detail is that as he falls, Django's jetpack flies off of his back. So basically, as you start off the game, Django is jetpackless. So basically, the very first thing that you have to do in the game is you have to fight your way out of the Borek arena. So you basically have to, like, shoot out this creature. And then once you're able to do that, you're able to escape out of the pit and are able to pursue Miko, essentially through Outland Station. That's basically the first, that's the gist of the first level of the game. So at one point in his pursuit, um, Django takes a a hostage, a Gran, who is basically a member of Miko's gang, and he forces this Gran to lead him to where Miko is, and he ends up catching up with him, but then Miko ends up running away again, and you have to, you know, duke it out with some of Miko's thugs and so on. And so eventually you make it kind of out of the arena area, and you make it into a part of Outland Station that is known as Merchant's Row. So this is basically an area where there are various stalls and stands and different people are kind of peddling different wares and so on and it is there where uh, Miko ends up stealing a speeder to get away from Django Fett and it is also in Merchant Row that Django happens upon a seller who has found and is selling his jetpack and the guy basically like sees Django Fett and basically tries to convince him to buy the jetpack and he like points out that oh it's you know it's the same color and design as your armor it'll go great but Django instead of like striking a deal with this guy he takes back his jetpack at gunpoint he basically holds up the guy and forces him to get back his jetpack so at that point basically like this is like halfway through like the second mission you finally get to have the jetpack. Crucially, though, it is not the jetpack that we most famously associate both with Django and Boba Fett. It is Django's backup jetpack, the one that he has in Attack of the Clones at the end of the movie in the Geonosis arena. So crucially, you get the jetpack, but at first when you have the jetpack, you have no missiles. So all you can basically do is fly around. So eventually you kind of go through Merchant's Row. There's one part where you kind of go through this like sewage system area and so on. You're engaged in various shootouts with um, Miko's thugs. And eventually you reach a hangar bay. 
So you go all the way through this like factory process area where there's like these bunch of conveyor belts and these boxes and so on. And all of them eventually lead to a hangar bay. And that is where you find Miko and he is trying to escape Outland Station in his ship uh, that is called the Longshot. And it's basically this kind of big, bulky cruiser that has all of these guns and so on. And you basically, in order to destroy the ship, you have to, like, shoot off all the guns. And you kind of have to dodge them because it's got, it's got like, blasters. And then I think it's also got, like, rocket launchers and so on and so forth. So it's fairly formidable. But then once you're able to, like, tank off all of the offensive weapons on the long shot, it eventually, like, blows up and so on. And Django captures Miko and he gets carted off to prison. And that is essentially the end of that first chapter, and that mission is completed. So once Django has captured Miko, we get a cutscene where we are introduced to the character of Montross. So we talked about Montross a little bit earlier, right? He was that second in command to Django's mentor, Jaster Mariel, who tried to take over as the leader of the Mandalorians, but lost out to Django. And we find Montross pursuing a human bounty on an unknown planet. And the two of them have this very kind of sinister exchange that really establishes Montross as the kind of villain of the Bounty Hunter video game. And it's going to be like setting him up to be the foil to Django, where Montross catches up to this bounty. He is kind of standing over this guy, and the guy says, you know, he's like pleading for his life and so on, and he tells Montross, like, I'm worth more alive, and then Montross holds up one of his pistols and he says, you're worth enough dead, and he kills him. The character of Montross is voiced by none other than a veteran of Star Wars, and that is Clancy Brown. So Clancy Brown, in addition to being in the Shawshank Redemption and Starship Troopers and voicing Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob SquarePants, is also the voice of Savage Opress on The Clone Wars, and he also voices Ryder Azadi in Rebels. So from there, we cut back to Outlander Station, where we see Roz giving Django the credits from the Miko bounty, and she also has a message for him, a transmission that has arrived. Now, one of the things about Roz, and this is another parallel that we can see between the Bounty Hunter video game and uh, The Mandalorian, is that Roz in this story is very much Django's grief carga. So she is the one who kind of supplies him with jobs, with intel, and so on. The big difference, I would say, between Roz and Grief Karga is that she's less kind of ambiguous as a character in the sense of, like, you know, the way that we see Grief Karga in season one, he's someone who's, like, an ally to Mando and then kind of, like, betrays him and then tries to get back in his good graces and so on. So he's a kind of a more shady character on that show versus whereas Roz is very much kind of unambiguously a kind of uh, helping character. So the message that Roz has for Django comes from none other than Count Dooku, who introduces himself as Tyrannus. And Dooku offers Django a bounty of 5 million credits for Kamari Vosa, dead or alive. And Kamari Vosa is the leader of the Bando Gora. Roz sort of tries to immediately kind of dissuade Django from taking the bounty. She says that they're too dangerous even for him, she tells him. But Django is rather intrigued by the sum of the, uh, the bounty, right, 5 million credits. And so he ultimately decides that he's going to take up the offer. So Roz then informs Django that the Bando Gora are behind 
a new craze in death sticks. You want to buy some death sticks? So death sticks are something that we are introduced to in Attack of the Clones and feature rather prominently. So because of this connection between the Bandogor and death sticks, Django decides to start his hunt for Kamari Vosa and the Bandogora on Coruscant, where death sticks are particularly popular, as we know from Attack of the Clones. And so it is on Coruscant that he decides to go after a bounty for a death stick dealer that Ross has given him by the name of Jervis Gloom. And so he thinks that this dealer might be able to have some information or intel on the Bandogora. So we kind of see Jango Fett about to take off and is going to go to hunt down this bounty on Coruscant. Then we get a cutaway to Montross, who is on his ship, and he flies a ship that is, I would describe it as actually very similar in looking to um, the Republic cruiser that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan fly in on in The Phantom Menace, but it's kind of like a backwards version of it where like the cockpit and the boosters are kind of in the front and then it kind of gets more elongated in the back. But apart from that, it looks very, very similar to that ship. So we see Montrose on that ship and basically we find out that at the same time that Django has seen the transmission from Dooku offering this bounty, Dooku is sending the same message to Montrose with the exact same offer of 5 million Republic credits for Kamari Vosa. So basically this is kind of setting up a kind of contest between Jango Fett and Montross. Dooku's kind of pitting them against one another to see, you know, who's going to get to Kamari Bosa first, and therefore who is the better bounty hunter, um, and therefore who is going to be the better template for the clone army. So just up to this point, there is, in terms of the kind of story arc, there is a kind of broad similarity with The Mandalorian in the sense that in this first chapter, we kind of see Jango on the job, we kind of see see what it's like for him day to day in bounty hunting, much in the same way that we see in, in chapter one of The Mandalorian, when we first see Din Djarin going into that cantina and capturing the bounty and then like flash freezing him on his ship and so on. So we get that first initial taste where you see kind of like what the kind of humdrum life of bounty hunting is like for each of these characters. And then after that, each of them are getting the kind of the big job, right? The, the one that is... Kind of will form the kind of central plot of the story. This is the kind of special assignment from a mysterious shady figure that is promising a big reward and that, unbeknownst to the main characters, is serving this kind of shadowy agenda that is in the background. So that brings us into chapter two, which is set on Coruscant. So we see Django flying to Coruscant not in the Slave One, he doesn't have the Slave One yet, but he has a ship called Jaster's Legacy, which formerly belonged to his mentor, Jaster Mario. And this ship actually reminds me a lot of the Razor Crest. I remember when I first saw the Razor Crest in The Mandalorian, like the first thing I thought of was the ship that Jango Fett has in this video game. It has a very similar design where it has like the twin kind of rocket boosters or repulsors in the back, and then like the cockpit and the hull is kind of in the center. 
the big difference between the Razor Crest that Dinjarin has and Jaster's Legacy that, that Django Fett flies is that Jaster's Legacy is much kind of it's bigger and then it's also kind of older and kind of junkier. And we 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 see in the in the like cutscene that introduces us to the Coruscant scene, we see Ron's kind of telling Django off for like still flying the ship and that it's like this junker and like why doesn't he use some of his money to buy a new ship? And the reason he mentions for not doing that is because he has a kind of sentimental connection to it, because it's this tie that he has to his mentor, Jaster Mareel. So Django flies in with his junker ship into Coruscant, and he starts off in the Coruscant underworld. So basically the same place that we see Anakin and Obi-Wan chasing Zamwazal in, in Attack of the Clones. And so he is basically looking for Jarvis Gloom. So you basically kind of work your way through the underworld, you know, fighting the occasional bad guy every now and then that comes up. And eventually Django catches up to Jarvis Gloom and he gives chase. So you're basically chasing after him as you're kind of fighting off various, you know, scum and villainy in the Coruscant underworld. And eventually you make your way to a nightclub. So again, in terms of story beats, there's very kind of similar between like the Jarvis Gloom chase here and then like the Zamwazel chase in Attack of the Clones where you're kind of going after this guy and then they disappear into a nightclub. Not the same nightclub. It's not the out- it's not the Outlander nightclub. It's a different one. But Django ends up going in there and he walks up to the bartender and starts talking to him and he ends up holding up the bartender to give him information on where Gloom was and then he eventually points Django to where he can go find Jervis Gloom and then Django ultimately captures Jervis Gloom who tells him that first off he has no information on the Bandogora he knows nothing about them which is not surprising considering Gloom is kind of a low-level street dealer but he does tell Django that he works for a guy by the name of Groth Hogg who runs a nerf packing plant in the industrial sector of Coruscant. So he suggests that Graf Hogg may have more information for Django about the Bandogora. And so Django ultimately takes Gloom Speeder to the factory in the industrial sector. So that leads us into the next mission. So Django, sort of using Gloom Speeder, ends up sneaking into a cargo slash hangar area of Groff Hogg's plant. And th- it's there that Django overhears kind of two alien workers who are kind of talking amongst themselves who have been assigned to guard duty essentially in this factory. And one of them mentions that they are guarding death sticks. And that's the reason they have been posted there. So basically the kind of setup that we get or like the, the conceit that we're being offered here is that you know, Grothog is running this factory where he is transporting nerfs, who are essentially kind of a creature who are used for meat and so on. But that this is really being used as a kind of front for trafficking death sticks. So, like, the nerf packing is the kind of legitimate business, and then Grothog is really running this, like, death stick operation on the side. And so Jenga, when he is in this hangar area, he locates a crate of death sticks, and he transmits a sample of them to Roz for her to analyze. Basically, he's kind of going on this hunch that he thinks there's something different about these death sticks from, like, the ordinary run-of-the-mill death sticks that you might be able to buy on the street. So from there, Django kind of makes his way through through the factory. You know, he's shooting it out with various folks who are stationed all around the factory or guarding it and so on. 
Eventually, he hears back from Roz, who tells him that his hunch is correct, that these death sticks are, in fact, different from ordinary death sticks. So she tells him that, ordinarily, the main ingredient in death sticks is what is known as the Ixital plant, which she says is kind of fairly common in garden variety. But that these death sticks, this sample that Django has located in Graf Hogg's factory, in fact, contain a powerful neurotoxin that is unknown, that is not showing up in any conventional um, register. So eventually, Django reaches um, the factory's carbon freezing chamber, which looks not unlike the carbon freezing chamber that we see in The Empire Strikes Back. It is, in fact, even complete with the catwalks that we see and also with Ugnaughts who are kind of walking around. Eventually, he reaches the kind of freezing area, and he finds that Montross has beaten him to Graf Hogg. So Montross has found Graf Hogg, he has interrogated him, and then he froze him in carbonite to kill him, essentially. And so there we get a kind of brief shootout between Django and Montross that happens a couple more times over the course of the game. And then Montross eventually manages to escape. So after that, Django, now no longer able to question Graf Hogg directly, ends up going through Hogg's um, computers to try and see if he can find any sort of information that's been stored there. And it is there that Django happens upon a panicked message from a Twi'lek senator by the name of Trell. And what we learn is that Trell has been essentially paid off by Graf Hogg to keep his whole death stick operation a secret. But now Trell is panicked. Uh, he has maybe gotten wind that that Montross is kind of on, on his tail. And he essentially like kind of wants out of the whole thing. So that message sort of gives Django his next pursuit on his trail. So he's, he ends up now going from the industrial sector of Coruscant to the upper levels. So again, which is a place that we see in both the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, basically where all the senators and politicians live and work. And so it is in the upper levels that Django kind of has to fight his way through Coruscant security. And this is where, like, the goons start to, like, acquire more weapons, basically, up to this point. Like, all the people that you're fighting basically just have kind of conventional blasters. But now in this level, you start to get, when you're fighting off a lot of these security guards, you start getting people that have, like, some of the plasma guns that have, like, bomb, like, grenade launchers and so on and so forth. So, like, th these kind of goons that you're fighting, like, they, they kind of kick up a notch at this point in the game in terms of the weaponry that they have. But eventually you kind of fight your way up through the upper levels. There's a lot of, like, climbing and flying that you have to do in this particular mission. And eventually Django reaches Senator Trell's apartment where he questions Trell. And he basically dangles Trell over his apartment balcony. And he asks Trell about Kamari Vosa and where he can find her. And Trell initially basically plays dumb. He insists that he doesn't know anything. But then once Django kind of threatens him some more, shakes him down some more, he eventually tells Django that his supplier, a guy by the name of Sabolto, asked him to move a new type of death stick for the Bando Gora, but he insists basically that that is all that he knows about the Bando Gora. And he tells Django that he should go to Malastare, where Sabolto is, if he wants to find out more, basically to find out more from him. 
And so it's at that point that a police gunship shows up and orders Django to release the senator. And this is where we get actually like a great little moment in this video game that I really, really like. So like you've got some, you've got a, a, a policeman basically from the, uh, from the gunship who kind of calls out demanding that Django release Trell. And then Trell says the same. And then ultimately Django obliges, but he does it by letting him go and letting him fall, Trell fall basically to his death. And so the kind of final thing that you have to do in, in the Coruscant level is you have to battle the police gunship. And this one is actually kind of rather tricky because, like, the way that you ultimately have to do it, like, your own blasters aren't particularly effective, is you have to get, like, a grenade launcher that kind of shows up and you can pick up. And then you basically have to kind of like fly up out of the apartment and you can basically kind of hover over, like, the chasm of Coruscant. And you have to basically get close enough to be able to launch the grenades into the, the hull of the ship. And that will eventually, like damage the, the ship if you do it enough times so that the ship um, is destroyed. And so after that, once Django has gotten his information from Senator Trial and has disposed of him, he leaves Coruscant and he gets back in touch with Roz. And so he learns from Roz that Sabalto is a Doug crime lord. And Roz suggests that the best way for him, Django, to get an audience with Sabalto would be to essentially bring him a present. And so Roz alerts Django to the fact that Sabolto has posted a bounty for a guy by the name of Bendix Fust, who is an inmate at the Republic's high security prison on the asteroid Uvu 4. And Sabolto has posted a 50,000 credit bounty on Sabolto for him to be brought alive. And Django ultimately decides to pursue the bounty, despite the fact that, as, as Roz warns him, Uvu 4 is a very heavily guarded prison and nobody has managed to successfully break out of there. So Django also asks Roz about Montross's whereabouts, and she tells him that Montross, the last time she checked, was in the Gazari system. And the, the kind of significant detail about that is that he is actually kind of far off from Sabolto and Malastare. And so what Django ultimately deduces from that is that Groff Hogg, in the course of his interrogation, lied to Montross and kind of set him astray. So that sort of gives Django a kind of a clear line to be able to pursue the bounty without having to worry about running into Montross, at least for a while. So after that, we get a, another cutscene that offers us our first look at the Bando Gora. So we see basically this kind of stormy planet. We see a kind of creepy castle on a hill. We basically cut to the interior of this castle where we see a Bando Gora figure who is wearing all black and is also wearing a kind of horned skull on their head who informs Kamari Ivosa, who's kind of sitting in shadow. We kind of get a, a silhouette of her, but we don't get a good look at what she looks like. And she's basically sitting in front of this, like, stained glass blue mural. And he tells her that their contacts on Coruscant are dead, and that, from what information they have gathered, that bounty hunters were probably responsible for that. So this is now kind of the first alert that the Bandogora and Kamari Vosa have that someone is after them. So from there, we go into chapter three, which is the Uvu 4 level. And I got to say, of all the six, like the Uvu 4 level may possibly be my favorite. It is not the most challenging, but there is something particularly fun about the Uvu 4 break-in and break-out level that I really, really enjoy. 
So we've seen Django, he slips onto Uvu 4 by essentially tailing the back of a supply ship. And he lands basically outside the prison. And the good news that we see when this level starts is that he now has the rocket launcher jetpack. So Django basically has to fight his way into the prison, and the prison is officially known as Desolation Alley. You kind of break in through this, like, hangar level, and the guards themselves, much like the, the guards that we see on Coruscant, use a variety of different um, weapons. So some of them you see um, have blasters. Others actually wield batons that if, if they get close enough to you can whack you and that can actually like ding down your health rather considerably. And so Django is kind of weaving his way into the prison trying to get to where the cell blocks are to find where Bendix Fust is. And Django ultimately get, finds an elevator. It's basically like a kind of cargo or freight elevator where he encounters an alien inmate by the name of Smootie, who tells him that Bendix Fust is on cell block level one of the prison and essentially offers to bring him down there. He mentions that he's going down to the mines that the cell blocks are kind of on the way. So Django ends up asking this prisoner, Smootie, about the Bandogora, you know, essentially whether he's heard anything about them from other prisoners. And it turns out that he has. And so Smoothie tells Django this story. So he tells him about a spice smuggler who had been formerly an inmate in the prison who said that he had been rescued from the Bandogora by a female Jedi, but that in the course of rescuing the smuggler from the Bandogora, this female Jedi, along with two other Jedi, were taken hostage by the Bandogora, who used the smuggler ship in order to escape. So this smuggler then hired a bounty hunter to track down his ship because it was essentially full of spice and he needed to get that spice back. And this bounty hunter ultimately found the ship on a desolate moon. And in addition to finding the ship, he came across... Uh, the female Jedi who had rescued the spice smuggler. And it turned out this Jedi had now executed the two other Jedi in a ritual. And it looked like she had been transformed into one of the Bando Gora. She had essentially been kind of converted or brainwashed into one of them. And it turned out this female Jedi, this one who had rescued this particular spice smuggler, who had gotten kidnapped by the Bando Gora and had been turned into one of them, was none other than Komari Ivosa. But unfortunately for Django, this smuggler did not know the location of um, where Kamari Vosa and the Bandogora were. Apparently, like, the bounty hunter had, like, gotten totally spooked and, like, refused to say where it was because he didn't, didn't want anybody kind of going back there. And then, interestingly enough, shortly after the smuggler told this story, he was found dead in his cell two days later. So we get these kind of pieces to the puzzle of like who Kamari Vosa and who the Bandogora are. Thanks to this inmate, Django is able to get into the cell block area and he sneaks his way through some ventilation ducts to Bendix Fust's cell. But it turns out he, much like on Coruscant with Grothog, he has once again been beaten to his prize. He has been beaten to Bendix Fust by 
none other than Zam Wazel. And this is an editorial note that I should make. I've seen a lot of people like on podcasts and different areas on pronounce her name as Zam Wessel. But interesting enough, in this game, it is pronounced as Zam Wazel. So I don't know if this is a kind of like situation where there's alternate pronunciations and both are accurate. I'm just going to go with Wazel because that is actually how I've always been pronouncing it. Like the Wessel was like the new one. The first time I heard that, I was like, huh, like I didn't know that. So I'm going to go with Wazel. But anyway, once he reaches Bendix Fassel, you know, he sees that Zamwazel has beaten him there. She takes Bendix and she starts a uh, riot, essentially, in the prison to cover her escape. And now in another interesting detail about Zamwazel is that in this video game, she's voiced by Liana Walsman, who also played her in live action in Attack of the Clones. So for both Django Fent and Zamwazel, we get like the OG characters returning to offer their voices, which is really, really cool. So now Django essentially has to fight his way out of the prison without Bendix fuss. He essentially you know, needs to like catch up to Zam to get his bounty back from her. And so now he basically has to like get his way through the prison while there is a riot happening. Now, an interesting detail about this like so-called prison riot that is happening in Uvu 4. And this is one of the situations where, like, video game logic diverts from real-world logic, and you just kind of have to roll with it, even though it doesn't totally make sense, which is that Django now has to, like, fight not just the Uvu 4 guards, but also, like, the prisoners who have been let out of their cell. But an interesting detail as you're, like, going through this level is that the guards and the prisoners are both attacking Django, but neither are seen attacking each other. So there are literally parts of the prison that you get to where, like, the guards and the prisoners are just kind of, like, walking or standing alongside one another. And they're, like, not fighting and not shooting each other. But as soon as you, Django, show up, like, they immediately come for you. Which, again, in, like, real-world logic makes no sense. But, like, in video game logic makes sense because, like, that you have to get as many, like, baddies as possible in order to make it harder for you. And so, basically, as you were going through this prison you are like going through different like cell blocks and so on and you are getting involved in different firefights whether it's you know with guards or with prisoners or with prisoners and guards at the same time who once again are not fighting each other which makes no sense but eventually you make it kind of through the prison and you make it into the caverns because this prison is kind of built into this asteroid so you kind of make it into some of the mines of this asteroid. And interestingly enough, as you're kind of going through these caverns and so on on Uvu 4, Jango Fett runs into an old friend, and that is none other than Miko Ginty, who was sent to Uvu 4 after Jango Fett captured him. And funnily enough, Miko is actually one of the bounties that you can pick up on this level in Uvu 4, because it turns out that the Borak owner, the person who owned the creature that Miko had been uh, fighting, basically placed a bounty of him. I think it's on. I think it's for ten thousand credits, and it's for dead only. So you can you have the option of taking out Miko for good as you're escaping the Uvu 4 prison. So eventually, he makes it back out to the surface, back to where he has parked his ship. And he finds out that Zam is trying to steal his ship in an attempt to make an escape with Bendix Fuss. So you have to like rescue Zam because she's pinned down by a bunch of prison guards. And then once you've done that, like the two of them kind of show off. Django tries to take Fuss from her. 
But before any of them are able to actually get on the ship and leave the prison, Jango's ship gets blown off by a ship that flies kind of past in the sky. And it is none other than a fire spray class prison ship, a.k.a. a slave one ship. So now neither of them have a ride off the prison. Not only that, the entire prison is on lockdown. So even if they had a ship, they wouldn't be able to escape. So Django ultimately now has basically kind of two missions. So first he has to get to the hangar to get a new ship for them. But he also has to shut down the shield first in order for any ship to be able to leave. So in order to f- figure out that second part, like how to shut down the shields, Django gets in touch with an old prison friend, none other than our buddy Smooty, who had helped him out earlier, who tells him that in order to bring down the shield, Django needs to destroy the three reactors that are powering the shield. And once that happens, it will trigger basically a kind of meltdown that will shut off the shield and will allow any ship to escape. And now this is a really kind of interesting detail when Django is in contact with Smooty, which is that after Smooty basically offers him this tip and so on, Django offers to take him with him when he and Zam and Bendix Fust all escape off of the prison. But ultimately Smooty kind of like declines and decides to um, to stay on the prison. So I like that little detail because it kind of shows that more sort of human side of Django and kind of shows him starting to kind of grow and evolve a little more. When we first see him at the start of the game, like we see him just as kind of ruthless, cutthroat, Django fat, you know, just doing his job and so on. Much in the same way that we see Din Djarin at the start of The Mandalorian. But then we have this little moment where like, there's this prisoner who Django has just met. He has no obligation to him at all. And yet he is offering to help this guy out to help him get off um, the prison. So I think that, that that's just a cool little moment. So now you basically have to fight your way into the reactor area. And this is a, quite a challenging area because on the one hand, you get more guards and these guards have various sorts of weapons. You know, they've got like plasma guns, they've got rocket launchers. You also have these like security droids that you have to fight and they um they again have these kind of like plasma weapons on them that are quite deadly. And like it, it takes a couple shots in order to blow up the robots. So they can be quite challenging when you have to fight them alongside like the prison the ordinary prison guards. And basically the way that this particular mission works is there's a kind of big central sort of cavernous hub. Like the best way that I can describe it to find an analog is it looks not unlike the place where Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Maul fight in in The Phantom Menace where you've got like all these big catwalks and so on. So that's the kind of central area. And then from from that hub, it leads to like the three reactors. And like there's all these sorts of doors and you have to like figure out which doors you need to go through in order to reach the reactors. And each time that you disable one of the reactors, like it gets harder to get to the next reactor, like more and more guards show up. So like once you destroy a reactor, then you go back to that like main hub area. There's more guards. Then you destroy the second, even more show up. After the shields are down, once you are able to destroy all three of the reactors, Django eventually reaches the hangar where all of the other like fire spray prison ships are being docked. But before you can get one of those ships and steal them and fly off, he has to face down a patrol vehicle in the prison. And it's this kind of big, clunky uh, ship. It's got like these three arms 
that hang overhead and there's like a missile launcher on each of them plus it's got like guns on the cockpit area and so you have to like shoot off all of the like the rocket launcher arms and so on and so forth but once that's destroyed once that out of the way he zam and bendix fust escape on one of the fire spray ships and as they're flying off they destroy the hangar so as a consequence of that uh jango's fire spray is now the last one because this was uh this was a type of ship that was manufactured exclusively for use on uvu 4 and he mentions that he deactivates the transponder on the ship in order to prevent the prison from uh tracking it down so they've made it off of uvu 4 they have bendix fust Django has you know from his perspective this added baggage with zam Lazelle. Meanwhile, we get a cutaway from there to Montross on his ship, where he is in the Gazari system, but he learns that Grothog has lied to him. So it turns out that there had been a smuggling route that had existed in the Gazari system, but had been shut down by the Republic a long time ago. And it is also there that he learns about both Bendix Fust, who had been one of the smugglers who had been working in the Gazari system, and he learns about the fact that there's been a riot on Uvu 4, and he kind of deduces that, you know, J- that this was all kind of Django's doing, or that Django has a connection to it. So from there, we go into Chapter 4. So now Django's got Bendix Fust, and now he has to deliver him to Sebolto on Malastare. So basically, what the game plan is when you get to the Malastare level is that Django and Zam split up on the planet. So Zam goes to deliver Bendix Fuss to Sebolto. So she kind of goes off to his, like, palace. And Django decides to kind of make his way to the compound on foot through the jungles of Malastare. Why? We don't... It's not totally clear why Django has to do this. Like, he could have just... I feel like he could have just very easily, like, gone with Zam, gone straight to Sebolto, you know, deliver the bounty, and then, like try to give him the third degree about the bando gora but like again video game logic like they need to create levels they need to create challenges and so on so you are like essentially as Django taking the long way to sabalto so as you're going through the jungles of malastare Django is having to battle you know the local population on malastare which are dugs and grands Django, in addition to kind of fighting off sabalto's thugs also has to do battle with the occasional nexu so the nexu we see is a creature that we see in attack of the clones it is basically the kind of like jungle cat like creature that attacks padme in the petronaki arena on geonosis so there's a couple of these that kind of show up and they're they're a bit dangerous because like they tend to hide initially they're like in little like caverns and so on and if you don't know to expect them, they'll kind of leap out at you and attack you and like you can very easily like die or at least lose a lot of life if you're not prepared for them. Now, for this level, much like in Uvu 4, you got, you know, the rockets as a new weapon. Uh, for this level, Django gets a sniper rifle that you can use uh, that is super, super handy. Uh, in addition to having a, a sniper rifle yourself, you also have to fight off snipers in the jungle level, so they're very often, like, stationed up in the trees or up in these, like, towers. And... The snipers can also do quite a number to you. Like, first off, like, they have very, very good aim. And then the other thing is, like, if they hit you, like, even just, like, three or four times, they can basically kill you. 
so they can be quite dangerous if like you're playing the first time and you don't know when and where to expect them but on the plus side you also get a sniper rifle and that can be super handy for again for some of those long range attacks so ultimately you regroup with uh zam and zam explains that that she saw Sabolto's guards taking Bendix Fust basically through a secret passage in Sabolto's throne room. And so it is at this point that Django kind of lets Zam in on like what the purpose is of this mission for Sabolto because he's kind of been keeping her in the dark. He tells her that he's looking for uh, Sabolto's secret death stick factory and he sort of assumes that it's probably underground somewhere. And so he thinks that probably the secret passageway that, that Zam saw Bendix Fuskenating through probably leads down into the Death Stick factory. So at this point, uh, Django hands off the sniper rifle to Zam to basically uh, for her to be able to provide him with some assistance. But ultimately, actually, in this next part of the chapter, like Zam is like really unhelpful. Like she has the rifle, but like she really doesn't do anything with it. She basically just like follows you around as Django. Like it would have been much more useful for the game, like if you had been able to just hold on to the sniper rifle, because she like does nothing. <laughs> so anyway, as they are, you know, making their way back up to Sabolto's compound, you know, you're doing battle with more dugs and so on and eventually at a certain point uh, zam and Django go their separate ways once again as they're getting closer to sabolto's um throne room so she ends up returning back to the ship Django orders her back there and you as Django alone make your way up to sabolto's compound and it gets a little bit tricky it's quite a tricky path because for one there's like a lot of people that you have to do battle in order to get to Sabolto. and in addition like a lot of the like thugs and so on are packing heat at this level and there's like one particularly tricky area where like there's a bunch of these bridges that you have to cross but at the same time like you've got like thugs with like rocket launchers and bombs and stuff and they're like blowing up the bridges so like you, there can be a situation where like you're crossing a bridge and if you're not careful or ready for it like they will just like blow up the bridge from underneath you and like you just fall to your death if you don't like if you don't use your jetpack quickly enough so that can be really really tricky the, uh, the path up to sabolto's compound so but eventually once you get to the throne room and you find sabolto there sabolto gets immediately like spooked at the arrival of Django fett and he runs off into this kind of secret passageway into his underground death stick factory and so, like, in order to, like, get to this passageway, you have to, once again, like, do battle with, like, a shit ton of, like, uh, thugs and, like, they have rocket launchers and all this stuff. And it's pretty tricky. But ultimately, like, you make your way through the throne room and you go through the passageway into the Death Stick factory. And what happens with, what you find, what you find out what happens with Sabolto is that he goes to the Death Stick factory for cover but in his kind of haste to get away from Django, he accidentally ends up going down a shaft that sends him basically falling into a death stick vat. So he ends up going the wrong way down and he sort of basically falls to his death. And then like Django kind of watches him die and he makes this kind of like crass remark where he says, that'll be a sour batch. So you ultimately do not actually get to question Sabolto directly because he dies uh, in his attempt to escape. But from there, Django basically makes his way further underground through Sabolto's factory. 
and you go basically from the kind of factory processing areas and so on into these like caverns. And it is there where you come across for the first time uh, members of the Bandogora. So the way that the Bandogora look is like the kind of conventional Bandogora is essentially like they're dressed kind of all in black. They have these kind of like black hoods and they have these like red eyes. So they really kind of look like Jawas, although they're like standard human height. They're not like short. And some of them fire off these like darts. I don't know exactly if they're like poison darts or whatever. And so they can be particularly tricky as you're moving through this cavern area because, like, the cavern itself is, like, all dark and they're, like, hiding in these little cracks and crevices. And so, like, as you're walking through an area, all of a sudden out of nowhere you might be being hit with these darts. Most of them, though, like, your standard issue Bandogora are, ba- are essentially unarmed and, like, they will just kind of, like, run at and swipe at you. But they'll still be, like, pretty deadly, like, if they do that. So, like, you have to try and, like, take them out at a distance if you can. But then at the end of the road, at the end of the level, uh, Django uh, comes across basically a kind of hangar area in this Death Stick factory. And he finds some ships that have uh, Hatti's markings on them. And it is here that Django crosses paths with Montross once again. And here, uh, Django and Montross have a shootout once again on, they battle it out actually on like little skiffs where like Montross is kind of flying around and you have to try and hit him. And ultimately, Zam comes into the rescue uh, with the ship and Montross is able to escape. So back on the ship, um, as Django and Zam are leaving Malastare, Django sort of tells Zam a little bit more about the job, about, you know, Kamari Vosa and the Bandogora and these death sticks. And so they ultimately conclude that the Bandogora is using this more potent death stick that they've been developing as a kind of recruiting tool. So they're essentially using death sticks to, like, mess with people's heads, brainwash them, and then kind of turn them into these Bandogora, like, cultists or slaves and so on. And from the ship that Django saw in the hangar, the one that had, like, the Hatini's markings, he deduces that the Bandogora were delivering their compound through the huts on Tatooine, who are then sending it along to Malastare, where it was getting processed, and then ultimately, you know, hitting the market in places like Coruscant. And so he sort of figures that the Bandogora were using this particular trail in order to make it harder for anyone to track the original shipment back to the Bandogora's secret lair. And so after that, we then see Montross leaving Malastare, and we learn that he has put a listening device on Django's ship. So he is basically hearing all of the conversations that are taking place on the ship and any sort of transmissions that Django's making, which is going to be super relevant um, later on. So this hut connection that they have deduced means that the next destination for Django and Zam on the trail of the Bandogora is none other than Tatooine, because every bit of Star Wars media has to go to Tatooine at some point. Again, another connection with the Mandalorian. So Django contacts Roz for information about the huts. So he learns from Roz that Jabba and Gardula are in a turf war, essentially, for control of the planet. And she also tells him about a 
bounty that Jabba had posted for a gangster by the name of Longo Two Guns. And so much like with Bendix Fust and Sabolto, she basically suggests that if Jango were able to carry out this bounty for Jabba the Hutt, it would get him a meeting with Jabba. And so he would be able to learn whether it's Jabba or Gardula, who is the one that are, that is working with the Bando Gora. And we also learn in this little detail in this bit of transmission that Roz heard about the bounty from none other than Watto. Watto is not mentioned directly by name, but she references a Toydarion on Tatooine who had lost everything on betting on a pod race. So we can deduce from that that, that is in fact Watto. Roz also in this conversation asks him if he's named his ship, um, and he says that uh, he has and that he has called it Slave One. Now, admittedly, this little exchange here between the two of them about, like, the ship and the name of the ship does feel a little forced because she's basically going, like, saying, you know, like, you come up with a name for that. Like, it it seems, like, set up in order to say the word Slave One and get that kind of established in the story. But I kind of like the fact that there's essentially no explanation for the name, right? It's just, like, a name that, like, sounds cool and sinister. Like, there's no, like, Django doesn't say, like, why slave, why one, or anything like that. So even though it is a little, like, forced, I do think, like, in terms of, like, ranking it, like, it's better than, for example, like, the Solo moment in Solo, a Star Wars story, where, like, Han gets his last name from the Imperial agent, so yeah, that's just a neat little detail there with with the ship officially getting christened the Slave One. And we get a cutaway at this point that shows that Montross has been listening in on their conversation. So crucially, Montross now knows not only that they're going to Tatooine, but he also knows about Roz and is now going to be able to like track down where Roz is. So when they reach Tatooine, Django and Zam, once again, as they did on Malastare, they split up. Django pursues this bounty for Jabba the Hutt, and Zam tries to get close to Gardula the Hutt to see if she can deduce anything about whether or not Gardula is working with the Bando Gora. So that brings us to the first level, or the first mission in the Tatooine level, and that is Longo Two Guns. Longo Two Guns, like, I have scarring from the Longo Two Guns level, because Longo Two Guns is probably, easily, it's the toughest level in the game. It is very, very hard. I will confess now, like, back when I was playing this game, like, regularly back in, like, the early to mid-2000s, the only way that I was able to, like, get through all the levels in the game and, like, get to the end was by using a cheat code that basically unlocked the whole game. Otherwise, I just would have been, like, stuck at Longo Two Guns forever. And even then, I didn't actually beat the Longo Two Guns level until, like, 2012. And even that, it was with the use of a YouTube walkthrough. Like, I literally had to watch someone play the Longo Two Guns level and to show me, like, how do you bypass all of the, like, shootout levels and, and parts and in order to get to the end. Because it is really, really hard for, like, two main reasons. The first is... Django all of a sudden doesn't have a jetpack in this level, and it's literally just this one level. There is no in-game explanation given for why Django all of a sudden doesn't have a jetpack. 
I was reading up something on Wikipedia in order to prepare for this episode, and it mentioned something there about, like, oh, the jetpack malfunctions because of, like, the Tatooine heat, which is, like, a really dumb explanation because, like, you get the jetpack later on in the Tatooine levels. It's really just there to make the level even harder. And then the other thing that is hard about the Lago 2 guns level is that it is basically an almost non-stop firefight. Even more than any level that comes before and after it. Like, all of the Longo 2 Guns gangsters, they have, like, the full motley of weapons. You've got, like, blasters. You've got sniper rifles. You've got people on e-webs. You've got bombs. You've got plasma guns. There's literally, like, one part of the Longo 2 Guns level where you show up and there is a guy on an e-web. And then there are three rooftop snipers. And you don't have a jetpack. So you are literally just, like dodging shit being fired at you from every single direction so it is really really hard um i played that level a couple days ago um because i was like playing different levels just to kind of get back in the spirit and remind me about some of the aspects of gameplay you get like i think you get like five lives or something like that um before you just like die and lose the level i think i died like three times and i played longo two guns like through a couple of times like it's just really really hard to make it all the way through without dying then at, once you're able to like battle your way through all those gangsters, you reach a pod racing hangar where Longo is holed up, and there is another huge firefight. And I swear, there's like at least like two to three dozen guys in this hangar. It is just like constant shooting again from like side to side, up like everywhere. There's just blasters hitting you constantly. But if you're able to make it through that without losing all your lives. You, are, uh, you defeat Longo Two Guns. Longo Two Guns is captured, and Django goes to Jabba and meets with him and asks him about the Bandagora. And he ultimately learns from Jabba that it's not Jabba who is working with the Bandagora. So that essentially leaves Gardula the Hutt as the one who has partnered with the Bandagora. But he also ends up telling Django that he'll find what he needs in Gardula's vault. So there will be the information to find where where the Bandogora are operating from. And Jabba has an additional favor to ask from Django. He asks that Django essentially take out Gardula for him, but to do so kind of discreetly, essentially keeping Jabba out of it. So from there, Django ultimately now knows he has to find Gardula the Hutt. So he f- uh, flies off on the Slave One. He goes to a canyon behind Gardula's palace to essentially sneak onto the grounds. Again, there's a kind of parallel with like the Malister level with Sabolto, where he's like trying to find a back way into Sabolto's compound. He checks in with Zam after he lands, who says she's seen uh, Bandogora kind of lurking about uh, the palace, which again, this is another like moment where you have to like pause and like interrogate the video game logic, which is like, you, like, you almost have to ask yourself, like, why didn't he just wait to hear back from her, right? Like, if you just, like, wait and she told him, like, oh, by the way, I saw some Bandogora, then it'd be like, there's the gimme, though. Okay, like, the Bandogora working with, with Gardula, and, like, you don't have to do this, like, pointless bounty where, like, you have no jetpack and are getting murdered by thugs all the time. But again, video game logic, real-world logic, right? And as she's, like, talking to Django over the comms, Um, She makes basically a passing reference about, like, getting into a disguise in order to sneak into the palace. So there's a bit of, there's an allusion there to the fact that she is a uh, shapeshifter, that she's a Claudite, although she doesn't come out and say it directly. 
However, before she's able to, you know, try to pull off any sort of maneuver, she's captured by Gardula's guards and taken prisoner. So you are now, as Django, you're going through these canyons, and these canyons are riddled with Tusken Raiders. And initially, as you're going through, you're just facing down Tusken Raiders and also the occasional Mastiff. So the Mastiffs are creatures that we see in Attack of the Clones. They're basically these, like, kind of dog-like creatures, um, and they, much like the Nexu in the Malister level, they, like, jump at you and bite you and attack you and so on and can, like, kill you very easily. Uh, the other thing that makes this level tricky, uh, particularly when dealing with the Tusken Raiders, is that a number of the Tusken Raiders uh, have sniper rifles. And so, and particularly, there's more of them than there were, for example, snipers on the Malister level. So they can kill you very, very quickly if you're not careful, if you're not able to, like, take them out uh, quickly enough or you're not able to get cover and so on and so as you're going through these like caverns and so on and you're you know duking it out with the tuscan raiders eventually you catch up to gardula's thugs and you the first time that you see gardula's thugs is they are on a bunch of skiffs and a sail barge and they are basically like battling it out with some tuscan raiders in these canyons and so you see not only some skiffs and a sail barge you also see a sarlacc there is a pit there um, at one point that you could potentially fall into if you get like shot or you like you overshoot with your jetpack or anything like that. Although this is uh, this sarlacc is like the OG sarlacc that's just like the pit. It doesn't have like the beak and the tentacles and so on. But in any event, at, the, at that point, like the the Tuscan raiders are kind of like behind you, and you're just like for the kind of last quarter of the game or so, like you're just fighting it out with Gardula's thugs, who again have a kind of like motley assortment of weapons. They've got like blasters, they've got bombs, they've got like plasma guns and so on. And Django, once he fights through enough of them, he makes it to the back entrance of Gardula's palace, where he finds Zam imprisoned, and Zam begs Django to like break her out of her cell but he refuses and essentially his reasoning is he doesn't want to raise an alarm like he basically wants to be able to sneak through this palace undiscovered and then Zam fearing that Django is going to leave her behind and basically pursue the Vosa bounty without her she cries out for the guards and Django is ultimately knocked out and is captured. So at this point, Django is brought before Gardula the Hutt, who is in this like outdoor arena where she has her pet crate dragon. So the crate dragon are these big creatures that are native to Tatooine. In A New Hope, you see a skeleton of one when C-3PO is walking through the desert. Uh, the crate dragon is also the is also what Obi-Wan imitates uh, when he is scaring off the Tusken Raiders in A New Hope. But in any case, you have to, in order to get out of this arena, uh, you have to both escape from the crate dragon and also from these two Gamorrean guards that have been basically posted on you. And at this point in this, in this first part of the level in Gardula's Palace, you have no equipment whatsoever. You don't have a helmet, you don't have a jetpack, you don't have guns. You literally just have your fists and that's it. And so basically what you have to do for this first part of the game, like the real strategy is like, there's really no use in fighting. Like there's no point in trying to like take out the Gamorrean guards with your fists or whatever, or any of the other um, Gardula thugs that you ultimately encounter when you like get out of the Crate Dragon arena, because you're just going to get killed. Like there's no possible way. So you essentially just need to like book it. Like you basically like run like through part of Gardula's palace 
which again can be very tricky like if you're playing it the first time because you need to like know where your equipment is and you need to know like which way to turn and so on but basically like that's like that's what i do whenever i play this level like i i, I make it out of the arena and then i just run for it but you do if you're able to like make it through that all right without getting killed and again once you play it a couple times it's not that hard but it is hard initially you're then able to pick up all your equipment and then you have to battle your way through gardula's palace and these are the fighting through gardula's palace really is like a kind of series of small melees where you're going through these various like hangars and uh storage areas and you're dealing with all manner of people with all manner of equipment again like your plasma guns you got e-webs you got bomb throwers rocket launchers at one point, you actually do run into some Bandogora again. There's a place where you get into, like, a hangar, and there's, like, a big supply ship, and there's, like, some Bandogora kind of lurking about in there. At the end of the level, though, you reach a, another arena. This one is basically indoors, unlike the first one that you start off, where Gardula and her Quake Dragon have been moved. And Django confronts Gardula. He snatches a medallion that is hanging around her neck, that is used to open her vault where he's going to get like this information that he needs and also in fulfilling his favor to Jabba the Hutt he pushes her into her arena where she is eaten by her crate dragon so the final thing that you have to do in the Tatooine level in order to get out is you have to kill the crate dragon now the way that the game wants you to do is it wants you to use rockets so basically you know, you've got your own rocket that you have in the jetpack, and then there are, like, rocket launcher guys kind of stationed all along the perimeter of the arena, and there are various, like, rockets you can pick up, like, if you kill them and so on. And so, basically, what, the thing that you have to do is, like, what, what the crate Dragon does is, like, at a certain point, it will, like, stand up on its hind legs and kind of expose its underbelly, and then it'll get back down, and then it'll, like, run after you and so on. And what you basically have to do in order to kill the crate Dragon is you have to hit it when it's on its back legs. You have to hit it on the underbelly because it's Otherwise, it's too strong and you won't be able to hurt it. And the way you want to do it is to, like, to use the rockets and like hit it in the underbelly. But in my experience, actually, the, the old-fashioned blasters work just as well on it and actually work a little bit better, particularly like the last time I played it, like I wasn't getting much traction from the rockets and then I just switched to the blasters and then I was able to kill the crate dragon in not too much time. So there's like an easier way to do it than the way that the game wants you to do it. So after Django kills the crate dragon, he goes and opens Gardula's vault and he sends Ra's data on Vosa's location for her to decrypt to basically find out where their base of operations is. And before he leaves Gardula's palace for good, he goes back to where Zam is in prison, and he essentially refuses to let her out of prison, kind of out of spite, because she uh, betrayed him. So back on the Slave One, Django is now booking it out of Tatooine alone once again, he reaches out to Roz to see if she has decrypted the information from Gardula Hut, but instead of Roz, it is Montross who answers. And we find out that Montross has gotten the information on Kamari Vosa from Roz and is now headed off to capture Vosa and the Bandogora. So Django now like does a beeline to Outlander Station, where he finds Roz basically on the floor, kind of clinging to life. Uh, Montross has rigged the station with explosives in order to blow up. And Roz, as she's sort of dying, she tells him that Vosa is on. One of the moons of Bogdan. One of the moons of Bogdan. And in addition to giving him that information, 
she tells him her her last kind of dying words to him is she tells him to find something else to live for besides money like she doesn't want him to just kind of pursue this life where he's living alone and just like cashing in bounties and so on like she wants him to have a fuller richer life and he leaves her there because she dies and then Django flies off just as the station explodes so you get this really kind of dramatic kind of touching moment between Django and Roz just before you get into the final chapter so that brings us to chapter six which takes place on the moon of Bogdan, specifically a moon that is known as Colma. So Django lands on Colma, and we find out that Roz has recorded a posthumous message for him about basically the Bandogora, essentially recording everything that she learned about them before Montross showed up. So Colma is uh, just a little bit backstory. So it is a former burial moon. It was the site where victims of a war that had taken place on Bogdan were buried originally and then had sort of over the years kind of fallen into disrepair and now like the Bandogora had taken refuge there. So you land initially in this hangar and now you have to kind of like make your way through essentially like the burial city on Colma. And naturally you have to face off against plenty of Bandogora cultists. Uh, as you do so. And the trick, essentially, to killing the Bandogora is to use what I would call the Obi-Wan strategy, which is you have to get the high ground. So the Bandogora cannot jump. So so long as you're on any kind of elevated platform, what essentially they'll do is, like, they'll all kind of, like, congregate around you, try to get you, but they'll just stay on ground level. They can't actually hop up on you. So what you basically have to do is you have to find some amount of, like, high ground, whatever it is, any kind of, like, platform or a ship or whatever, and then from there you can just, like, switch on your flamethrower and then, like, roast them like so many Anakin Skywalkers on the shores of Mustafar. Um, and that is really, like, the best way to try to take out the Bandogora. If you try to just go, like, guns blazing, you will most likely get overwhelmed. And there are basically two types of Bandogora that you fight on Colma. So you've got, like, the regular ones that I described before, which is, like, just, like, they're all in black, red eyes, little hoods. And then you also have what are known as Bandogora captains. So these are the guys that are similar to the ones that you see in the cutscenes. So they basically have these, like, skull helmets and they also wield these staffs. And, like, the whole thing about the Colma level, all three levels, like, it has a very kind of spooky ambiance that can leave you, like, very unsubtle if you're playing through it the first time. And even kind of leaves you on edge even after you've played it, like, multiple times. Because, like, you're walking through all of these, like, ruins and these destroyed buildings and there's all this rubble everywhere. There's, like, parts where, there are, where there's fog... A lot of it is dark, which makes it harder to see, like, where the Bandogora are. There's one particular part in, like, the first level where, like, you're going through this kind of swampy, marshy area and you have to, like, avoid the actual water because, like, the water actually, like, kills you, essentially. Like, if you sit into it, like, your health starts going down. So it is this very, like, foreboding ambiance to the whole level and really, like, keeps you, like, on your toes the entire time because you never know, like, when a Bandogora is just going to, like, pop up out of somewhere and attack you. Django ultimately catches up to Montross sort of just outside, like, the gates leading up to Vosa's compound. 
And there they engage in one last shootout. And they have this really kind of interesting exchange just before they do, where it kind of alludes to what we're going to see in Attack of the Clones and Beyond, where like Montrose, he's talking about Kamari Vosa, and he's talking about her in almost this kind of admiring way. And he says at one point, imagine Django, the power to send thousands of mindless assassins willingly to their deaths to plunge the galaxy into anarchy. And so that is very much, I think, at least in my opinion, a kind of foreshadow to the clone army. Or you could even like use it as a foreshadow to like even like the battle droids army, like the separatists and so on, right? That you have these these kind of like drones who are able to set out and fight and like cause all this chaos throughout the galaxy. So you have this shootout that you engage with Montrose. Django defeats Montrose. And Montrose, as he's kind of lying there wounded, demands that Django gives him a kind of good death, a kind of warrior's death. Django, however, rightfully refuses and he leaves Montrose to get torn apart by the Bando Gora, who kind of like show up and surround him, so like ripping him limb from limb. And that is the end of Montrose. So that brings you basically into the, uh, the kind of lead up through to Kamari versus Citadel. And again, it's very similar in the sense of like, there's a lot of like caverns and caves and dark areas and like a lot of rubble and ruin that you have to really be careful as you're fighting your way through. And then ultimately you get to the Citadel where Kamari Vosa is. And what happens is that when Django enters the Bandogora Citadel, he's immediately overwhelmed and captured. It's actually kind of funny. This happens at the end of the second level where like you pass through these doors and like all of these Bandogora come at you. And your first instinct is like you just start like you have to start like shooting at them and you have to like throw your you know whip out your flamethrower and so on like you're anticipating like there being more to this level but the thing you actually have to do for the level to end is you basically have to let them attack you and overwhelm you and so on because that then that will lead like basically into the next cutscene in the final level. So what we see then is that after Django gets captured, he is tortured on a similar device that's used on Han in The Empire Strikes Back, where he's, like, bound, and then, like, there's that apparatus that is, like, pressed into his face, um, and he's tortured. And it is then that Kamari Vosa arrives, and we get a kind of full look at her for the first time, and we see that she's in this kind of, like, black outfit, and she's got, like, white hair that's, like, short and kind of standing up, and when when she comes, she sort of starts taunting him. You know, she says that she, uh, she's going to turn him into one of her slaves, that she's, you know, make him into one of the Bandogora. But just then, before she's able to do anything with nefarious with him, Zam shows up to save him. And it is totally unclear and left unexplained how Zam found the moon and made it into the castle, right? Because presumably only Roz had that information and, like, Montraz got it from Roz and Django got it from Roz. So it's not clear, like, how Zam, like, gets off Tatooine and, like, finds Colma. But again, video game logic, you just got to roll with it. And it is at that that Vosa busts out a pair of red curved hilt lightsabers, and these are the same lightsabers that Asajj Ventress has. So interesting enough, in Legends, Dooku passes on these lightsabers from Kamari Vosa to um, Asajj Ventress later on when he makes Ventress his apprentice. So uh, Vosa goes in for the attack and she ultimately injures Zam and she kind of runs off. 
and then Django ultimately, like, once he's freed, he puts on his equipment. It's actually this really cool montage where we see him, like, he like he's holstering his pistols, like, he puts on his jetpack, and then he puts on his helmet, and, like, as he's putting on his helmet, he says, back in a minute. So it's this really kind of, like, cool ambiance. Like, it gives, it's a setup for, like, this is the final showdown. And then you have to basically pursue Vosa through, through a citadel. And actually, I would say, even, like, of the three... Uh, levels in the coal model. Actually, this level, I would say, the final level is actually in some ways, like, the easiest. So, at least up to, like, having to f- fight down Vosa. But then ultimately, Django catches up with Kamari Vosa in her throne room, where we see her in, like, in that first cutscene. I think there's a couple other cutscenes where Vosa also shows up. And you essentially duke it out with Kamari Vosa. And the way that it goes is basically she, like, she alternates in terms of her moves where, like, at certain points she is, like, charging at you, and then other moments she's, like, she does a kind of, like, force jump, and then, like, she's, like, deflecting blaster bolts with her lightsabers. And so the the moment to strike, basically, is, like, when she's, like, charging at you because she's kind of got her lightsabers behind her, and so she's at her most vulnerable. So, like, those are the moments where you have to, kinda, like, shoot at her. But you also have to, like, keep a really good distance from her because, like, particularly when she jumps, she's able to, like, in some cases, like, jump directly at you and then, like, really wound you and possibly even kill you uh, if you're not able to, like, get away from her fast enough. And then ultimately, after a while, Django is able to defeat Kamari Vosum. And so Django kind of stands over her as she's kind of lying on the steps of her, you know, of her throne room. And then suddenly, before he's able to decide whether to take her in alive or dead, she is force choked and she dies. And then at that point, Django turns and he sees Dooku standing right behind him. So what it ultimately reveals is that Dooku knew exactly where Kamorivosa and the Bandogora were this whole time. And Dooku also reveals that Kamorivosa had once been his apprentice. And so Django insists that Dooku, you know, pay up the bounty of 5 million Republic credits. And Dooku counters with another offer, which is he offers Django to go to Kamino with him to be cloned. Django ultimately accepts this offer and the kind of additional reward that comes with it, but on the condition that Django receives the first clone for himself and that that clone is unmodified in any sort of way, because Dooku mentions that, like, the clones are going to get modified for them in order for them to, like, grow faster and to be, like, obedient and so on, but Django insists, like, getting the first clone for himself. So again, we sort of see that moment of the more kind of human side to Django Fett, right? Where he's like, he, like he wants someone to take care of and to care for. And he's also kind of like fulfilling Roz's dying wish for him, right? That he lived for something else besides, you know, the work and the money and so on. Although I do have to say, like, and this is just kind of like an aside, it has nothing to do with the video game, but is this something that's stuck in my head? Like, I feel like as Star Wars fans, I don't think we, like, really appreciate, like, just how weird it is that Boba is both Jango Fett's son and also his clone of himself. Like, that's weird. Like, that's objectively really weird. Like, imagine you have a kid, and the kid is, like, 10 years old, and it's just, like, 10-year-old you. Like, granted, like, they may have, like, their own personality and stuff, so they're going to be different in that way. But other than that, they look and sound exactly like you. Like, that's weird. It's really, really weird, in my opinion. But I digress. So then we get the final scene of the video game where Django is carrying Zam back to the Slave One, 
and she asks him if she can get a cut on the reward for Kamari Vosa for her hand and essentially saving his life. And he replies, don't push your luck, Zam. And then we just kind of see this shot of the slave one in the distance. And there is the end of the video game. So just some kind of final wrapping up thoughts on Star Wars Bounty Hunter. So the first thing I wanted to note is that the guys over at uh, the Star Wars in a Galaxy podcast did an episode on Bounty Hunter a little while back. I'm going to throw a link to that episode in the in the show notes for this. So if you want to go listen to it, you can. But I was listening to theirs as kind of prep for this episode, um, and they made a really interesting observation about this video game and its kind of parallels to other things in Star Wars. Like, they noted the kind of parallel between the Bando Gora here and Crimson Dawn in the sense that, like, these are both kind of underworld criminal organizations that are led by force users, fallen force users who also like dark side users. So I thought that was a really interesting parallel, which is very true since like Crimson Dawn is led by Maul and then the Bandagora is led by Kamari Vosan. You know, as I've alluded to at various points in talking about the video game, I feel like uh, Bounty Hunter does a lot to flesh out Janko's backstory and to give his character depth. You know, in Attack of the Clones, you know, we don't get a lot of them. And in Attack of the Clones, he's a fairly kind of two-dimensional character. We just see him as this bad guy, and we know he has a son, but we don't see, like, him interacting with his son a whole lot. We don't know much about Django. But, you know, here in this video game, right, we see Django's, you know, backstory. We know more about, like, how he became a bounty hunter. And we also see him caring about other people, whether it's Roz, whether it's, you know, Smootie, the guy from the prison, Zam even, you know, before he ultimately, like, coldly disposes of her in Attack of the Clones. And then also kind of Boba, right, his, his motivations for her for getting Boba Fett. So much like with, you know, Din Djarin in The Mandalorian, you know, he starts out be- just being in it for the money and then kind of gains other motivations. You know, in The Mandalorian, right, we see Din, like, just doing, like, the bounty hunter thing, and then ultimately he finds Baby Yoda, and then he kind of develops this bond with Baby Yoda, and then he starts, like, you know, d- you know, developing a kind of softer, more human side to him than than when we first see him. And I really gotta say, like, this game really changed how I saw Django Fett. You know, in terms of, like, extra canon material, I know it's not canon anymore, unfortunately, but, like, this was something that, like, really did affect, like, how I watched the movies, and particularly, like, how I watched Attack of the Clones. Like, you know, when I would see Attack of the Clones kind of post-playing Bounty Hunter, like, I did really feel like I knew Django Fett more. And I thought that he was much kind of a fuller and more interesting and more compelling character than the the version of Django that we just see if you just watch the movies. So I did really like that. I really hope that one day, like, we get a kind of like recanonization of Bounty Hunter. I don't think it actually works. I think there's, I think that what little canon material we have on Django, I think probably contradicts some bits of Bounty Hunter. But like, to the extent that they can bring Bounty Hunter back in in some capacity, like, I would really love that into new canon because I think it's a great story. Um, I think it does a lot for the character. So yeah, that's the overview of Bounty Hunter. I actually really enjoyed putting this together and it's actually sort of inspired me. Like I think I will do future episodes with other like video games that I have played. So like I've already, I've got, I've got this big like note on my uh, phone where I like write down different episode ideas and I've already written down like possibly doing future episodes on like um, 
the Rogue Leader games, or I think the Rogue Squadron games, I'm blanking exactly what their names are, but like doing an episode on some of those, or maybe doing an episode on the, um, the OG Clone Wars video game. So just to bring some of those things in and kind of like talk about them, even though they're not canon anymore, I think they're still like really, really fun and tell some really interesting stories. So what to expect for episode six? So episode six is going to drop on October 11th. And what we're going to be doing for episode six is we're going to be looking at the character of Yoda. And that is OG Yoda, not baby Yoda. And we're going to be looking at the philosophy of Yoda. As many people who have looked at and commented on Star Wars have noted, Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions play a really big role in, you know, shaping the kind of philosophy of the Jedi and what we see in, you know, the movies and the books and the TV shows with like the Force and their teachings and so on. But equally, I think, important and equally influential and equally reflected in Star Wars media is the influence of Western philosophy, particularly ancient philosophy, the philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans. And so I want to sort of explore that intersection of Star Wars and philosophy by looking at Yoda and looking at how some of Yoda's teachings and his sayings and doings and so on reflects the views of some of the most famous philosophers in the ancient Greek and Roman world. So that, I think, is going to be a really, really fun character deep dive with Yoda. So, as always, if you're not subscribed to the show, make sure you are. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, the show is on, on Twitter at a larger view pod. I'm also on Twitter at demondum. And until next time, look for the Force and you will always find me. 